It's Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is the New Hampshire News Recap. Let's get into this week's top headlines. New Hampshire's abortion ban continues to take center stage at the Statehouse, with bills on both sides of the aisle trying to further restrict abortion rights or repeal the 24-week abortion ban. And the Department of Education's Black History curriculum is drawing some criticism from teachers. Joining me now to discuss these headlines are two reporters from the New Hampshire New Hampshire Bulletin, senior reporter Anne-Marie Timmons and education reporter Ethan DeWitt. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you both for the time. Uh, let's start with you, Anne-Marie. New Hampshire's 24-week abortion ban took effect in January. Now, last week, the Senate rejected legislation that would have repealed the ban, but it made some changes to the ultrasound mandate. What, what does the ban look like now after those changes? Now the, um, the ultrasound mandate is clearer as to when it has to happen. In the original version, it was, it was unclear, it was vague. Uh, some people felt like it had to be offered and done in all abortions, even those before 24 weeks. Now it just requires them, if it, a woman is at 24 weeks or a doctor thinks she is, and that has been better in the minds of the um, choice community and the medical community, although there's still um, unhappiness that there's any medical decision being make, made in the law. So a little movement there, but the, uh, the ban does not have exceptions, Anne-Marie, in cases of rape, incest, or fatal fetal anomaly. I know you've spoken with, with some people who have gotten a fatal fetal diagnosis late in a pregnancy. What have they been telling you? What are their stories? Really difficult stories to hear. Uh, all three women learned very late um, at 20 weeks, um, 22 weeks, one at 18 weeks that their babies uh, were not developing. They were not developing brains or kidneys or hearts, and it, there was no chance the baby would live. And so they made an agonizing decision to terminate that pregnancy. Um, in every case, they wanted to deliver a baby that they could hold and grieve and say goodbye to. And um, it's just really hard. They had a hard time talking about it, even though it's been 22 years for one woman, 16 for another. And they, what surprised me, well, not surprised me, but really stuck with me is that these children remain the part of their family. They're the children they went on to have, talk about them as siblings. They celebrate their birthday each year. So it's very counter to what the debate is in the state house, which sometimes is a very late in pregnancy. A woman decides, second thought, I don't want to be a mom right now. I don't want to continue this pregnancy. And these women really gave a very different perspective of that late in term option for fatal fetal diagnosis. And today under the law, they could not make that decision. They would have to fulfill the rest of the weeks of their pregnancy regardless. And a House committee I know is considering two new bills, uh, or considered two new bills on Wednesday, I think it was, to create new limits on abortion procedures. One would allow prospective fathers to seek a court order blocking a woman from having an abortion. Anne-Marie, can you explain the details of what that would mean for, for someone that would be seeking an abortion? Sure. In this case, any man without proving paternity would be able to go to court and file an injunction that would immediately halt a woman's abortion. And uh, it, would, it would take some time for the court to have the hearing, make a decision, and paternity would only be required if the woman disputed that. In that case, the man would have to get a paternity test, which would further delay this decision from the court. 
And in the case of incest, if a woman did disclose that that was incest, she would have to arrange and pay for DNA testing for herself and the man. And so that, again, is yet another delay. And you can imagine that's a very difficult thing to talk about. And the only exceptions are someone who's in prison for the man um, or has been convicted of sexual assault or crimes against children. But we heard in a lot of these cases um, in rape or um, violence against children that sometimes that doesn't go reported because of family complications or fear. And so if a man has been accused but not face charges or his charges have not been resolved, he would still have standing in the court. And often where we see abortion bills having you know, a close divide between opposition and support. Um, there was, there's 3,000 people almost had signed in as of this week in opposition to that and 30 um, in support of it. So I think we can assume this is going nowhere, but it could, I suppose. That's what I wanted to ask you. That was my next question. Um, uh, Emory, another bill I know being considered would effectively ban abortion after six weeks. This would be similar to what's happened in Texas uh, in that case that went before the Supreme Court. Is that true? Yes. And that is brought has been brought by uh, two lawmakers who have made this effort um, before many times. And this is another one that as of now, does not seem like it's going to gain traction. And the governor has said he would reject that bill. He would veto it. Um, and he said he feels like our 24-week ban at the moment is the right place to be. Of course, the while the six-week ban probably won't succeed, the people who oppose the 24-week ban are feeling like that's a stepping stone to a more gradual um, reduction, maybe 22 weeks or maybe 18 weeks and then 15 weeks. So they fear we're headed that way, but I don't think we'll see that that six-week ban pass here this year. It's Morning Edition from NHPR. We are recapping this week's news with New Hampshire Bulletin's Anne-Marie Timmons and Ethan DeWitt. And if you've got some questions for reporters on what's been going on in the state, you can email us, voices at nhpr.org, and inform our reporting. So this is February. It is Black History Month, and the State Department of Education recently unveiled a, a curriculum for the month in partnership with the Woodson Center. Now, Ethan, I want to turn to you. What is the Woodson Center, and what does this, this new plan look like? Sure. So the Woodson Center, it's a right-leaning nonprofit that seeks to empower disadvantaged and marginalized community, but it seeks to do that using conservative principles. Um, it was founded by a civil rights activist in the 1980s, and it attempts to tackle racial disparities through more conservative solution themes like individual empowerment and faith and entrepreneurship, kind of as an alternative to more governmental approaches. Um, and the Department of Education, the Hampshire Department of Education has worked with this national center to produce four YouTube videos for Black History Month. And essentially these are short three minute videos that seek to highlight different Black American figures throughout history who have, um, as, the, as the center puts it, have triumphed over discrimination and other adverse conditions. So one video is about Booker T. Washington, who in the Jim Crow South um, helped found 5,000 black schools um, and partnered with a businessman to do so. Another shows Elijah McCoy, who was a Canadian black inventor uh, who helped develop improvements to steam, steam engines. There's another video about the thousand black volunteer soldiers who enlisted in the 54th 
Massachusetts Infantry Regiment um, during the Civil War. So the theme is, um, you know, highlighting stories of empowerment of uh, some of Black historical figures throughout history, um, you know, within the context of some uh, pretty discriminatory times. Yeah, what are you hearing from teachers about these videos and the lessons as, as they're rolling out here? Sure. So teachers have, I've, social studies teachers I've talked to have uh, a complicated view of this. They uh, support the idea of, you know, teaching history through the lens of the people who lived it. Um, but they are skeptical of the project in general, um, largely because it kind of comes in an environment that we've seen where they feel that they're, they don't have the latitude due to a new law that passed last year to teach um, history and particularly um, black history and history that deals with marginalized groups um, in the, with the same latitude that they did before. Um, there, as, as I'm sure you know, there's a, there's a law that has come to be known as the Rights of Concepts Law that prohibits them from teaching um, certain concepts um, that many teachers say restrains them. So when they look at this project that's coming out, they say that there are um, some, you know, neutral or positive things here, but it doesn't really fit with the way that they would like to teach, which is by using primary sources and by uh, kind of empowering children to um, look to the uh, actual texts and the documents and come to their own conclusions rather than looking at a wholly positive or wholly negative um, view of American history. Now, I know state Democrats, Ethan, have recently presented legislation that would change this, this so-called divisive concepts law. Uh, what would those changes look like? Sure. So there are a, there's a range of changes that have been proposed. Some of them would repeal the law altogether. Others would uh, change how teachers are disciplined under the law. So there's one bill that would, uh, right now under the law, any, any parent who feels that a teacher has violated the law and has taught something that um, their, their child found discriminatory um, can take a lawsuit to the, uh, any superior court or can go to the, the Commission for Human Rights. And that can happen without the teacher knowing it. The teacher would be informed, obviously, once that happened. But there is no internal process necessary right now for a teacher. The conservatives and Republicans who support the law say that's important. That's about empowering parents. But teachers say that this is, uh, you know, way too punitive and that uh, it could result in teachers potentially losing their licenses, which is essentially, you know, the end of their careers um, without much ability to reconcile it internally. So there is a bill that would require parents who have issues with teachers under this new law to take it to school administration first, to have it worked out by the superintendent first. And if a, a resolution couldn't come out from that, an investigation couldn't come out, to appeal it up to the Department of Education, which could then maybe take some of the steps that are in law now. So the idea is, you know, again, a more local approach. But again, Democrats are also proposing to repeal the, the, the bill outright. And there's another bill that would, uh, repeal the bill and also put in a, a protection on the other side, protecting teachers from, um, from any sort of uh, liability for teaching about uh, disadvantaged and marginalized communities and teaching the history of them. So there's a lot of different directions that Democrats are taking. Always competing bills in the New Hampshire legislature. And, and of course, we, you know, we have to know Republicans obviously in control. Uh, I, before we do go, I, I, Emory, I want to turn back to you. We've had you on before when COVID cases and hospitalizations in the state were rising. What's the situation look like now across the state, briefly? This is good news. We've seen a, a dramatic drop in hospitalizations and cases uh, for example, a month ago, we were seeing 3,700 cases on a seven-day average. 
Yesterday, that number was 724. So that's a, that's a big drop. Uh, hospitalizations are dra- down dramatically, 475 two months ago, yesterday 175. So those numbers are going in the right direction. And as we've talked, it's hard to know what to uh, understand about our vaccination tracking. But what we're seeing is the people seeking out vaccination for the first time or boosters. That is slowing in the state, according to the CDC uh, website. So a little bad news there, but otherwise really good news in, in terms of numbers of cases and hospitalizations. And of course, there is talk now about possibly dropping mask mandates as that's happening in states around us. Um, what does that, that, that situation look like for schools in particular? I'll throw that to Ethan. <laughs> okay, I'll give you I'll give you twenty seconds, Ethan. Can you do it in twenty? <laughs> well, I think that schools, the, these kind of mass mandates have come up um, at a local level organically, and so I, I think I, I could speak for kind of what's happening statewide. But I think that you'll you're going to see just like you saw them come up a patchwork effort to drop them. Um, I would imagine over the next few weeks and months, but kind of how it plays out really depends on the pol- the politics of that particular town. Certainly true. All right, New Hampshire Bulletin's Emery Timmons and Ethan DeWitt, thank you both so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You can find the work and all the stories we talked about at NewHampshireBulletin.com. And uh, a note for you, a programming note, NHPR is broadcasting the State of the State Address coming up on Thursday on the 17th at 10 a.m., so be sure to tune in for that. And we'll be back next Friday for another round of the New Hampshire News Recap. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is Morning Edition from NHPR.